Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber. And today we're taking a look at affirmative action. We're seeing what works, where it works, areas of improvement, and how we might be able to reimagine it for a better outcome. We're here with Georgetown Law Professor Cheryl Cashin, author of the book Place, Not Race, and speaker at today's HGSC Ask with Forum tonight. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you for having me, Matt. So let's start with some numbers. Mid-1990s, the percentage of four-year public colleges that consider racial or ethnic status in admissions has fallen from 60% to 35%. Only 45% of private colleges still explicitly consider race, with elite schools more likely to do so, although some have retreated from this. Before we get into your own personal opinions on this, why this shift over the past few decades? Well, I think it's a combination of um, um, legal challenges to race-based affirmative action and um, it, consideration of race being less politically salient, i.e., um, frankly, um, white students not liking and resenting the fact that um, they are not likely to benefit from race-based affirmative action. So I, I think it's been... political pressure and um, legal challenges that have made the policy um, less um, popular with with administrators and and also with people. Mm -hmm. I'm curious from your sort of expert opinion now, deeply understanding everything going on with affirmative action, can you just kind of explain how it works nowadays? I'm sure people have heard of what affirmative action is, but in, in practice, how it is now, uh, give our viewers a sense of what well, it is. Well, um, most universities, because of what the courts have said, um, they they want all their student bodies to be diverse, um, um, and 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 they want the educational benefits of diversity. They have a compelling interest in that, and it's constitutional for them to consider race in order to get the educational benefits of diversity. Um, but they can't consider race in a rigid quota way. So um, they can consider race as a holistic in a holistic administration process where you're looking at a lot of things, SAT scores, grades. Um, race can be a modest plus factor, not a rigid determinant, you know, outcome determinative thing. Um, and uh, that's how it tends to work. Um, all things being equal, if you've got um, two candidates that are similar in qualities, but one of the two candidates comes from a traditionally underrepresented uh, population or a population that's not well represented in the student body, um, it's constitutional um, for the school to consider that as long as they, as long as they've tried other reasonable non-race race-conscious ways of getting that diversity and have not succeeded. And your book, Place Not Race, sort of argues a different form, a reimagining of affirmative right. action. I think people would be interested the focus on place, not race, in affirmative action. Right. Well, what, basically what I'm arguing is that I think affirmative action should go back to its original purpose of helping people who are systemically locked out. And increasingly in our society, the people who are 
locked out or have who face serious structural impediments to accessing selective higher education are people who are in segregated, separate, and unequal schools. Um, and and uh, you know, black and Latino kids dispro disproportionately suffered that. But a lot of um, you know working class white kids are in low opportunity schools as well. And what I'm arguing is that if you're a high achieving student from a low opportunity school, um, I define that as having 20% or more of your peers being poor. By definition, in American society, you are in a school that likely has weaker teachers, fewer um, um, advanced classes, and fewer of the resources that help create marks of distinction that um, you know at admissions officers at selective schools pay attention to. But if you, you could be the hardest working kid in your school, um, and and but you're competing with students that may have 20 AP classes available to you. And I'm saying that those are the students that need and deserve affirmative action. Um, um, uh, and that increasingly, I'm uncomfortable with, um, even though it may be, it's constitutional, I'm uncomfortable with assigning to race, using race as a proxy for, uh, you know, the fact that we continue to have discrimination in American society. So, well, you know, um, why not um, give special consideration this plus factor to people who've actu who are actually disadvantaged, who've actually had to overcome the enduring legacies of Jim Crow or the, or the enduring or the increasing um, stratification of American society? So, so mm -hmm. that's certainly the issue at hand. And the question is, how do, we, how do we truly reimagine this? How do we move this conversation forward, reframing how people look at affirmative action, focusing on place? Is that, I'm assuming, a process that involves multiple stakeholders? Well, um, it depends. You know, if you're the president of the university, um, you may just have to convince yourself, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've sent copies of this books to a number of presidents at universities. But let me also make it clear. I'm not arguing that place should be the only dimension of affirmative action. I'm actually arguing that the lessons of, of, of decades of affirmative action should be applied to the entire process, and that the entire process should um, de-emphasize standardized test scores for everyone which is what affirmative action does currently for, for students of a certain race, that we should scrub the admissions process of any practices that aren't truly tied to merit and focus us on the things that are, are, are most predictive of college success in a way that doesn't reify existing advantage. That's cumulative high school GPA um, uh, and the willingness to do the work. I'm, I'm ar basically arguing for something more radical than holding on to the shreds of, of race-based affirmative action, um, reimagining merit and scrubbing the admissions process of unfair advantage. So standardized tests should be optional or not used at all. Um, we should return to financial aid to being based solely on need, not so-called merit. Um, legacy preferences should be scrapped, um, along with racial preferences, um, and that we, and that institutions that are serious about true racial, economic, robust um, inclusion, diversity should work 
with organizations like the Posse Foundation or QuestBridge that are very good at finding high achieving students from low opportunity settings um, that won't naturally, without a lot of outreach, find their way to a campus like Harvard. The Posse Foundation uh, is an alum of, Deb Beal is an alum of the Ed School, mm -hmm. so great, mm -hmm. great reference for this program. Mm -hmm. So you send your book to college presidents, you get your word out, you're persuasive, you're eloquent. What are people saying to this? Is it, yeah, great idea, maybe? Are people pushing back? Are they saying yes, then you're seeing actual movement in this? Uh, what's been the reaction? Uh, it's across the map. Some people push back greatly. You know, I've, I've been accused of abandoning middle-class African-Americans, which um, I, I don't think is the case because most African-American students um, in this country, in, in public school, um, are in separate and unequal schools um, and in separate and unequal neighborhoods. Um, uh, but on the same time, time, I've had some people who are tremendously supportive who, who agree with the idea that we're capable of complexity today, you know, race itself is blunt, um, who are comfortable with the idea that um, we can distinguish between a, a wealthy, advantaged person with black skin who may not suffer any structural disadvantage and a person who, of, of whatever color who does, and that uh, they like the idea that that's a more unifying way to pursue diversity going forward. But the responses are all over the map. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, last two questions. Who needs to hear your message right now? Uh, there's people you obviously can reach out to, but is there one individual or one group or one subset of the population that would really benefit from this new understanding, that your book, your messaging? I, I think the most logical audience for my book is, is, is people who run admissions offices, but then there's a much broader audience. Um, I mean, the, the, the final chapter of my book is entitled Reconciliation, and, and anybody who believes in diversity and wants to make it work, or believes in this country and makes it, wants to make it work, you know, I, I, I'm trying to get us to think about where we want to end up and where we want to be you know, 2030, 2040, 2050. How is this incredibly diverse society going to cohere in a way that brings all people along? Um, so uh, the audience is, is both very narrow when it comes to admissions in higher education, but it's also broader about how we create a saner multiracial politics that connects the dots between people of color who are disproportionately disadvantaged and struggling white folks in this country who are also uh, increasingly locked out, out, out of opportunity. The name of the book is Place, Not Race, A New Vision of Opportunity in America. Share our last question. This is a sort of grab bag question. Um, we could be mistaken, but it says you were an electrical engineering student in college. Right. Any stories of how this unique background has helped you in your law or activism career? Oh, I draw on my engineering education every day. Um, first of all, I was born in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, a place where Warner Von Braun and scientists went in the 60s to help put the man on the moon. So I was surrounded by engineers. It was a common um, um, profession. Um, I loved math and science. And I approach, even, you know, writing, argument, 
I approach it very logically. Um, 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 I also, also approach it in a very evidence-based way, but um, I, I, I think analytically uh, and hopefully rigorously about these issues. And, um, you know, that's part of how I came to this position about place. When, I, when you look at the data, you know, increasingly uh, race-based affirmative action doesn't help the population that people have in mind when you're talking about the policy. Well, thank you very much for uh, telling us a little bit about yourself, about your fantastic book, and what you're doing here at Harvard today. You've been listening to Cheryl Cashin, author of the book Place, Not Race, A New Vision of Opportunity in America. Thank you very much, Cheryl. Thank you, Matt. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. <laughs>